That's exciting. You're gonna, you got that update about Switch, and then next week, actually, Stacey Hess will talk a little bit about Hopetown. As we've talked over this last year as a church, is realigning ourselves to be about discipling and being about making disciples of what Jesus called us to. And so we want you to see with young people and then with, with even discipleship starts the moment someone walks in, comes into this world and then has an opportunity to come to know Jesus. And so we want to make sure from top to bottom that that is our focus. And so that's why we gave you that quick update on what's going on with Switch. And you'll hear more about Hopetown and how all of us are participating in moving forward in making disciples and being disciples as we choose to, to follow Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to continue along this line in following Jesus. And we're going to be back in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34 this morning that we're continuing in this series called Disciple. Uh, you can obviously see a theme running through our church right now. And uh, we're looking at the words of Jesus, really starting in Matthew 5 through 7, and then looking at other passages throughout Matthew to understand what it means to follow him. And so uh, this morning we come to uh, another passage, which is easy and not difficult and not challenging at all, which if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that's an absolute lie. Because what we're going to look at this morning is, again, another uh, challenge that Jesus gives to us about what it means to follow him. This morning, we're going to talk about anxiety and fear and worry. And now some of you, when I say those terms, some of you, you fall in maybe one or two camps. Some of you think, yeah, that's, that consumes my life. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of things that go through my mind that I kind of obsess about, and they kind of control me. And others of you say, you know, I really don't have an issue with worry. I, there's nothing in this world that I'm afraid of. And so that you're, you're, you kind of pride yourself on being courageous and not having any fear. But when you and I dig a little bit deeper in all of our lives, you and I discover that down underneath the surface, so much of what we do and how we think and even some of the decisions we make in life are driven by anxiety. And what Jesus is going to focus on this morning, what we look in this passage, that there's an underlying question that all of us live with. And we may not even articulate it in our own minds, but it's something underneath the surface that drives portions or even all of our life in the decisions and the focus that we take and the direction we go in life. And that question many times is, am I going to have enough? Am I going to have enough, maybe as basic as what Jesus will talk about in a moment, food or clothing or a roof over my head? Or will I have enough money to be happy? Will I have the right relationships? Will I have enough acceptance for people to like me? And what drives us underneath the surface is this fear that I won't have enough. And so what happens is that over time, what should have been something we knew that God would supply for us becomes the focus of our life. And we become distracted and we become fearful and there is anxiety and this weight of worry that we carry around, missing out on the life that God really wants us to live because we've been consumed with this overwhelming anxiety. And so this morning we want to look at this passage and learn from what Jesus says about how we can handle that and navigate that in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to start reading in verse 25 and I'll read down to verse 34, which Jesus just gives us a fire hose of information about worry and anxiety. So he says in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why uh, why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothed the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow was thrown into the fire, what will he, what will he not much more clothe you, 
you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. There's a lot there. It just literally feels like someone just sprayed us down with a fire hose of information. But I want to take some time to just to walk through what Jesus is saying because it's really important for us in terms of how do we navigate the worry and the anxiety and the fear that so many times dominates our lives. So before we jump into the details of the passage, that the core of what Jesus is focusing on is really in verse 32 and verse 33, where he really, as if you were here last week, there's no middle ground with Jesus. And that's why, you know, in Revelation, he talks about that, that lukewarm is the, the last place that you and I want to be. But last week, we talked a little bit about how you can't serve God and money. You can't have it both ways. You either serve one or you'll serve the other, but you, it, there has to be a choice. In verse 32 and verse 33, Jesus kind of creates that tension again for us. Because he says in verse 32, he says, listen, don't run after all those things, all those places where your needs are supposed to be met, or maybe even some of the wants and desires in life. Don't run after those things because the pagans, those who don't follow me, those who are, who are not a part of my family, they run after those things. But then he talks about in verse 33, but seeking after him, his kingdom, his righteousness. And so what he's setting up for you and I is that all, honestly, if we're just, if we get down to the core of who we are, there are only two pursuits in life. There is the pursuit of stuff, things, you know, money, things we can buy, possessions, or there is the pursuit of God. That's it. There's, those are the two that Jesus kind of narrows down of what our lives are about. Either, either we, we kind of cover it in different ways, but when we get to the end of the line, we either discover we have pursued stuff in life or ultimately we have pursued God. And so with that understanding this morning, I want to take a look at, at how you and I end up in these two different pursuits and where they lead in our lives. So looking at verses 25 and verse 31, the first thing that Jesus starts with, and this is so basic and important, but you can't overlook it. The pursuit of stuff, Jesus highlights three things, and the first one is food. And you think, I came to church to hear someone preach about food. I don't know if I've ever had that happen before. But look at verse 25 and verse 31, because there's two questions that Jesus brings for you and I that come out of this that are a question that you and I ask ourselves all the time. Now, the first one is in verse 25 and 31 is, will I have enough? Will I have enough food? Now, for most of us, that's not a daily question. That might be, in, in some of our lives, that might be a season of life where we come through and we question, will I have enough to eat? Am I going to have enough to put food on the table for my family to supply what I need for the day? Jesus talks about that when he says, he says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink and he says, don't say, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Don't worry about those things. But those become things that you and I focus on. And see, what happens is that you and I have to understand when Jesus calls us to follow him, he also help, wants us to realize that he will provide for us in that pursuit. That he will always meet our needs. When God called Israel out of Egypt... And they came, He remember where he took them to, which really they ended up choosing themselves because he wanted to bring them into the promised land, but because of their lack of faith, they ended up being led into where? The wilderness or the desert, where not a lot of stuff grows. Maybe some cactus and some scrub brush, but nothing else. So they're in this desolate place. There isn't a place where they can start harvesting. They can't start coming up and providing food for themselves. They don't have that. So for 40 years, what does God do? He supplies manna and quail for them. He gives them what they 
need. He supplies food. When you're in a place where you can't supply food for yourself, there isn't a grocery store down the, sto- down the street. God has to supply. Israel was at that place. So for them, this was important to understand that the God of the universe will supply the food that you need. Now for you and I, most of us, that is not a daily challenge. In fact, for most of us, we never even think about where our next meal is coming from. Now, there's some in our culture that deal with that, but even within our own city, there is a great wealth of resource that people can access as far as food. But if we move that outside our context to a different culture, this is a daily question. It's a daily tension that people live in all the time. But what is our tension? What do we live in? It's the second thing that I think Jesus references. Is, is not Maybe you and I don't ask the question, will I have enough food? But maybe the question that we end up asking is, will I have what I want to eat? It's not about having food. It's about the kind of food that I want to have. And that's what Jesus says in verse 25. He says, is not life more than food? I think sometimes we get that backwards. We think that food is more than life. Food becomes a pursuit. Food becomes an obsession in our lives. It's something that drives us. And it's not necessarily, are we going to have it? But what kind of food do I want to have? It's down to the simplest thing when you're going to get together with friends and you're going to go out to dinner. What is always the first question? Where are we going? And nobody wants to answer it, right? Everybody has an agenda, but no one wants to be honest. You just wait for the other person to say what they want to do. Because why? In our culture, we have options. And that's become part of our obsession, is that we do have those options, and we do have food, and because of that, we get so focused on that. And it becomes our life. It becomes our obsession. Sit down and watch TV for an hour. I guarantee you, within that hour, you're going to see at least one, maybe more commercials about weight loss. You're going to see Weight Watchers. You're going to see Nutrisystem. You're going to see Dan Marino looking all slick and skinny. You're going to see all these celebrities and say, hey, just do this. Why? Because food is an obsession. What's one of the number one reality TV shows on television? It's called The Biggest Loser. And it's about weight loss. Why? Because food controls us. Food is an obsession. It's something that we want to control, but it ends up controlling us because it becomes our pursuit. Anybody seen Supersize Me by Morgan Spurlock? Was that a few years ago? He ate McDonald's for 30 days, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you watched what it did to his body over 30 days. Now, hey, don't knock McDonald's. I was addicted to McDonald's about 12 years ago. Kim can tell you, seriously. But it was something for me, almost an obsession. Because when I was a kid growing up, when we went out to dinner, it was like maybe once a month and it was McDonald's. And I didn't even get to have my own fries. I had to share a small fry with my sister. So when I got older and I got, you know, money, like 10 bucks, I actually went to McDonald's on my own. And I seriously, for a while there, if I didn't have a place that I was meeting somebody for lunch, I would get in my car and my car at an autopilot that always found the closest McDonald's. It just did. Why? Because I was just focused on that. Now I have a new obsession. It's called In-N-Out. And we all know how wonderful In-N-Out is. But food becomes this controlling thing in our life because there is an abundance of it. The very thing that God has supplied for us has now somehow in some of our lives taken his place. It's become our passion and our pursuit. It's our escape from everything else in the world. And that's why Jesus is reminding us life is more important than food, but sometimes food becomes more important than life. And when that becomes that point, then what we've done is we've become like the pagans. We're pursuing stuff. We're going after the things that ultimately God will meet our needs for, but we, we get sidetracked. And then the second thing Jesus touches on, another basic necessity, he talks about clothes. So in, again, verse 25 and verse 31, and two questions that come out of that. The first question that most of us don't ask, but some of us might, is will I have enough clothing? 
Will I have something to put on? Will I have clothes? Now, again, outside our context, you go into another country. This is a dialogue that people will have ongoingly. Jesus said, what? Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your body, what you'll wear. He says, don't worry saying, what will I wear? This fear of, will I have clothing? Will I have the the basic necessities of life? That's, that's That's important for human beings. In fact, again, back to Israel, coming out of Egypt. You know, when they got into the wilderness, not only was there not a grocery store, there wasn't a Walmart, a Target, a Macy's, or a mall anywhere near there. They couldn't go down and buy themselves any clothing or shoes. So what did God do? Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 5. It says, Yet the Lord says, During the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. Are you kidding me? Somebody wants the patent on that. Somebody wants that. What, 40 years? Can you imagine having clothing that lasts 40 years and it doesn't wear and it doesn't, it doesn't fray and it doesn't fade and it, it's what you need and you have it. Some of you are thinking, I can't imagine having that because I know trends change all the time and I wouldn't want to wear the same clothes for 40 years. But what if God supplied you clothes that lasted you every single day? God cares about those simple things in our life. He will supply those things. He did for his people. But then there's the second question, much like it was with food. Most of us, our issue is, am I going to have enough clothes? That's not the question. The issue and the question for us is, what am I going to wear? It's the, it's the dialogue you have every single morning when you walk into your closet. Jesus says the same thing. He says, is not the body more than clothes? No, for some of us, clothes have become more than the body. The, our physical health is, le- is less important than what we wear. We'd rather look good than actually feel good because we're so worried. And so our dialogue becomes... Do I have the clothes that I want to wear? When we walk into our closet and we look at the clothes, like you all did it this morning, some of you who are really organized and really obsessive, you started last night because you wanted to make sure you had just the right thing to wear today. And so you start to think through and you, and you know, if you walk in and you have all these clothing and what comes to your mind is I have nothing to wear. We've all said that, right? No, it means you don't have the very clothes that you want. You have tons of clothes to wear, but just not the ones that you think are going to make you look good. And that becomes an obsession in our culture. That's why we have TV shows like What Not to Wear. Because you don't want to look like an idiot, you know. And if you've seen that show, they get hidden camera of the person who dresses horribly and their friends all gang up on them. And finally, it's kind of this, this wardrobe intervention. And they get them on the show to actually make them look good. And it's this transformation. Why? Because you can't look bad. Because if you look bad, then people won't like you. That's the whole thing that it sends to you and I. And so we become obsessed about our clothing, about how we look. In fact, when I was young, I had a friend who, he always like wore all the latest like name brand clothes. And I always kind of looked up to him. And, and uh, in fact, that became so important to him in his life. He was so obsessed with making sure that everything that he wore was the latest name brand. That, that his family went through a season where things were a little bit lean, but he still wanted to wear name brand. And so when I was coming into to middle school, that was when OP shorts were huge. Anybody remember OP corduroy shorts? Yeah, they were like the coolest thing, right? And so his family couldn't afford it at that time, but his mom found some knockoff OP shorts that didn't have any labels on them, but they looked just like them. And he was so focused on having to wear name brand that she found a friend that could embroider OP on the shorts for him. And he had like five pairs of them. And I remember, I knew because I inherited those shorts from him. And in fact, when I got them, I'm like, this is cool. And then I put my hand in the pocket and it only went halfway because OP was embroidered all the way through the pocket and, and the pant part. But he was so consumed, it's like, I have to wear that. Now, I don't, nobody in this room would ever go to the great lengths to do that, would we? 
yeah, there's certain clothes that we'll buy and certain things that we'll wear. Why? Because we're so consumed about our appearance, what we wear. And that becomes our pursuit and that becomes our focus. Hear me. Uh, Shopping is not evil. I have to say that. Oh, my wife will beat up on me later, okay? But it's when you and I become so focused on that that we lose sight of what's really important. We lose sight of the fact that God will supply what we need. And then there's a third kind of category that Jesus talks about in the pursuit of stuff. He talks about food. He talks about clothing. And then he talks about tomorrow. And when our focus comes, becomes about not what's happening now, but what's happening tomorrow. So two questions that arise out of that in verse 34 and then verse 27 is this. Is will tomorrow be better than today? For some of us, that's the focus of our life. That we look at where we're at right now and we're so disappointed or unhappy or consumed with maybe what's going on right now that all we can do is look to tomorrow. For the rest of us, we're just so consumed about what will happen tomorrow that we forget about living today. That we carry around this anxiety about what's the next thing going to happen. And for some of us, it becomes this controlling thing. Jesus says, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Tomorrow will worry about itself. He says, each day has enough trouble it's on. If you think that you're worried about tomorrow, how about focusing on today and what's happening in front of you now? Sometimes we, we do. We just think somehow it's going to be better. But when we live that way, we, we are consumed with we're not living life now. And the weight of what's going to happen tomorrow outweighs what's happening today. If you're like me, I, I've shared before, I grew up until I was about 13 or 14 years old, I was controlled by anxiety. I was afraid of everything. I've told my journey about literally running from school and running from my parents and and not wanting to, just because of fear, everything just controlled me. In fact, my parents knew uh, as I was growing up what was going on inside of me and they knew the anxiety and they knew that I constantly lived in fear of what would happen tomorrow. So if I knew something was coming up that I didn't like and they told me ahead of time, they would pay the price for it. I wouldn't sleep at night. They wouldn't sleep at night. It wasn't a very fun environment for our family because I was consumed by worry. And so because my parents knew that about me, they would be very careful on what they told me was coming in the near future. If it was good or bad, because I could get excited too, but they would withhold information. One day my mom dropped me off at the dentist and our dentist was about a mile from our house and she used to because with four kids, she would drop us off to get our teeth clean then she would go run errands and then she would come back. So that wasn't uncommon. So she drops me off, it's about 10 or so, and so I went into the, the dentist's office, and I went and kind of, I know what the cleanings are like, and so I sat down in the chair, and then the dentist said, hey, you're, we're going to show you a video today. So he had me go into another room. I'm like, oh, cool, a video. Come to the dentist and watch a video. That's fun. And so I sat down, and I started watching the video. It was about 15 minutes long, and, it, and the whole video was about how a dentist extracts teeth. And I thought, this is the coolest thing. I'm like learning what a dentist does. I'm watching it and watching some poor kid get his teeth yanked out of his mouth. And I'm like, ah, this is fascinating. I'm not putting anything together. I'm not making the connection here. And so we go back into the chair and I sit down and the dentist all of a sudden pulls out this really long needle. I'm like, wow, I don't remember this last time I got a cleaning. This is a little different. So I'm like, okay. And so he shoots one time and then two times important. 13 shots later, I can't feel anything. And then he says to me, oh, by, he goes, by the way, we're going to extract four teeth today. I'm like, oh, man, my mom didn't tell me about this. So I sat through it. I had my teeth pulled. I finished. He gave me all four teeth in this, you know, little holder. And so I went out to the front desk. I picked up the phone, called my mom. I said, hey, mom. I said, did you know that when they clean your teeth now, they actually pull teeth, too? And she's all, honey, no, 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 no. She said, they did it on purpose. I said, they did? She goes, yeah, we didn't want you to worry, so we didn't tell you that you were going to get four teeth pulled. Because what would have happened if they told me? I would have physically resisted going to the dentist. 
because I was so afraid. See, you and I have to understand that what life sometimes becomes for us is never living now. It's living with anxiety for tomorrow. And when we do that, we are distracted by what's coming next instead of what's happening now. And especially in this life, this life is so short. It's so temporary that we don't have time to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. We have to focus on what's going to happen today, which leads to verse 27, what Jesus says. The next question really is, many times we ask ourselves is, Will I live long and prosper? Will I have the life that I dreamed of having? Will I have the retirement that I want to have? Will I have kind of, I'll live however many years, 80, 90, 100 years, and I'll have all the things that I want to have. Will I live that life? See, Jesus says, can any of you add by worrying or add one single hour to your life? So many times we have anxiety about how we're going to plan out our life and making sure our life is as full and as long as we want it to be that we never truly live life. We make plans that we are not guaranteed will ever happen. Listen to a reminder, pretty pointed reminder from James. When he says in James 4, verses 13 to 15, Now listen, you say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, it, if, if it is the Lord's will, we will, live, we will live and do this or that. How much of our life is spent on the future? Is what's going to happen? I mean, this, this happens over and over again. And sadly, as a pastor, I've seen the tragedy in people's lives where I've, I've sat down with, with a spouse who their spouse worked 40 years and saved for a killer retirement and had the next 25 years of their life planned only to find out a month after retirement they got cancer or they had a heart attack or they died. All the plans of 40 years of working with this kind of end result in mind that I'm going to save this money, I'm going to have this great retirement only to find out your life's a vapor. It's here and it's gone. Now you're thinking, wow, I am so encouraged and so blessed to hear that. I've been saving for 40 years. Some of you might be at the age of retirement. Now you feel really encouraged, don't you? But you and I have to understand how much of our life is spent on tomorrow at the expense of today. That's why Jesus is talking about he will meet our needs if we choose to follow him, which is what we'll talk about in a moment. But he will meet our needs. Do we really believe that God is in control of our lives? Do we believe that he's sovereign? Do we believe that it doesn't mean that we have to be blind to the future, but it means that we don't need to focus so much on the future. We need to focus on today. See, God will take care of the future. And if you and I believe that God is sovereign, which means he knows everything, he's all-powerful, all he is in control of everything, if we really believe that, then he know, we know that he is in control of the number of days that we live on this planet. That ultimately, he has determined how long we're going to live. In fact, Paul says that in Acts, that he's determined the times and the places where we live. He's determined things because he, he's in control. Do we trust that? See, if we trust that, I don't have to worry about my retirement plan. Does it mean that I don't put money away to retire? No, I do, but I don't worry about it. I don't obsess about it. I don't care if the stock market goes up and down and my retirement goes up and down. I know God's bigger than the stock market. Do I really trust him? You recall what, what retirement package that God gave his original 12 disciples? Anybody recall what the outcome of their, was for them out of the twelve? Death or exile. That's the two options. That's what he provided them. He didn't say, hey, if you come and follow me, I will give you the best 401k you've ever, you've ever seen and a wonderful retirement and a wonderful pension. He didn't say any of that. He said, come die. That's what he said. Come follow me and die to yourself and choose to follow me. I'll take care of your future. 
That's why when you read through the book of Acts, you can see Paul in his amazing faith and insanity faces fear, faces death, isn't worried if he's going to die. He doesn't run from it. Why? Because he knows that God's in control. He's not worried about tomorrow. He's not worried about when he gets to Jerusalem, eventually loses his life because he wants to get, eventually gets to Rome to appeal to Caesar. He's going to lose his life, but he's not worried about it. Why? Because he knows that God is in control and he doesn't have to worry about tomorrow. Do you and I really trust God with our lives? Do we trust him enough that he can, we'll let God worry about tomorrow. We will focus on the here and now and what he's doing in our life right now. The challenges he's breaking through, the things he's calling us to do right here and now in front of us. And then we switch to the second part, which is if we're not pursuing stuff, the only other option is to pursue God. And Jesus goes on to explain what that looks like for you and I. And the first thing of the pursuit of God understands, it understands how God places the highest value on us. This is important. Jesus uses the absolute most ridiculous examples to illustrate for you and I what he's talking about. So let me read verse 26, 28, and 29. It says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And then verse 28, Why do you worry about clothes, saying, or See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which they're here today, gone tomorrow on the fire, how much more, how much more will he clothe you? How much more will he love you? How much more will he value you more than birds and more than flowers? This is a ridiculous example. Just think for a moment. When was the last time you saw a bird nervously flying around looking for its next meal? with great anxiety on its face, worrying, am I going to be fed? When was the last time you saw a a flower consumed and upset about how beautiful it looked? I don't think you can find it. Why? Because God fed the birds and God closed the flowers. What Jesus is saying is, how much more does your heavenly Father love you and care for you and value you that he will take care of your needs? If he does that for birds and flowers, can you imagine what he does for his kids? He loves us. He places the highest value on us. And if you and I would let that settle in, I think for some of us, anxiety would lift. That God really does care deeply and loves you and cares deeply even for the basic needs of our lives every single day. He values us more than anything. But I want you to think about that because sometimes what you and I have more faith to believe is that we have the faith to believe that we're saved, that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient to pay for our sin so that we could be forgiven, that we could be with God forever. I have the faith to believe, but I don't have the faith to believe that God can supply my needs. We do. We live, we live with more concern over if we're going to have food, clothing, and the stuff that we need than the fact that God has saved us from hell. How is it that we have more faith for this and none for this? See, what you and I have to understand is that salvation is this comprehensive thing that doesn't start when you and I enter into eternity. It starts the day you and I surrender our lives to Jesus. And God is in the process of saving us and supplying for our needs and what we have in this life. And so that we can have this peace and this joy and not this anxiety that God is already at work on our behalf, taking care of the needs that we have every single day. But somehow, I don't know how we've gotten this mentality that somehow salvation is just this future event. So God saves me and I get my fire insurance. I don't have to go to hell. And now the rest of my life, I'm just waiting for him to come back so I can go to be in heaven. And in this time, I have to make sure that I live a really good life and be just perfect so that when he comes back, I get to go to be with heaven with him. 
See, that's the equivalent of someone coming to you and saying, hey, have, I have the dream vacation you've always wanted to go to. And you're like, oh, it's wonderful. But there's a little catch. You have to pay for the airfare to get there. And it's about $5,000 a person. Now, that would be a little bittersweet, wouldn't it? And somehow it's like we say to God, God says, listen, I want you to be with me forever. I've made a way. I've sent my son. He's died on the cross so that you can be reconciled to me. But by the way, you have to earn your way to get there. That's not the way God works. God supplies for us spiritually. God supplies for us physically. God supplies for us emotionally. God supplies for our lives. How much more does he value us than his own creation? He values us at the most of anything in the world. Then leading to the next thing in verse 33. So the pursuit of God also understands how to place the highest value on God. So God places value on us. He sent his son to die for us. There is no greater value. But then, if you and I truly pursue God, we understand how to place the highest value on God. In verse 33, probably one of the most famous verses in in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. First three words of that verse. But seek first. Now, if I were to take a poll, most of us would say, Well, yeah, I really try. To make God first. Some of us would actually be as bold as say, yeah, God is first in my life. And what we mean by that is that we acknowledge him as we go about our daily life. That we give him some money through the church. We serve in some of our time. We do certain things. And so God is first. But what we're really describing is that God is an add-on. We've set our course for life. We've set our agenda. We're doing what we're doing with life. And then we've asked God to come join our party. And so we say, yeah, God is involved in everything. God is first. And what we've just said is actually God is second. And if God is second, God is last. First means the priority. First means there's nothing that comes close. First means nothing compares. First means nothing even competes. And that's why if you... Uh, one Sunday, I'm going to take time to talk about comprehensively about giving, about tithing in the Old Testament, about New Testament giving, because I have people talk to me all the time about, well, tithing is not a New Testament principle. Well, usually when I talk to people like that, let's turn to Acts and let's see what the early church gave. They didn't tithe. Did you know the early church didn't tithe? They gave more than 10%. They went out and sold their property and gave all of the money to the apostles. So if you want to go New Testament, I usually say, let's go New Testament. Then they go, oh, well, you know, I like tithing. Tithing's good. We'll stay with tithing. But if you read through the Old Testament, you get the principle of the tithe. One of the things that many times accompanied when God talked about money and giving in the Old Testament is the phrase, first fruits. First fruits, which means your livestock and your crops and your income. The first fruits went to God. Why the first? Because of a couple reasons. First of all, it sets priority that God is first. But the other reason is very practical because if God is first, all he ever gets is the leftovers. That's all he gets. There is really no second place. There's either first or last in our lives. And that's why Jesus says, listen, if you want to be free of anxiety and worry, then stop pursuing stuff and start putting me first. So just think about these questions for a moment. How do I know what's first in my life? How do I, if I really think through what is first, answer these questions. How do I spend my money? And we talked about this last couple weeks. How do I spend my money? Maybe a better question is, how do I spend God's money? Because it's not yours. It's not ours. We're simply stewards that God has allowed us to be a a conduit of his resources. If you have a, a hard time answering that, 
Open your checkbook ledger. Look at your online, online bank statement. Look at your credit cards, your debit cards. Look at your bank account. At the end of a month, it will tell you what you spend your money on. It will tell you what you value most. And there's that little line somehow in there that, oh yeah, I, I gave something to this charity or I gave to New Hope. And so, hey, God's in there. But it'll show you what our, our priorities are. Do we truly put him first? Another very valuable commodity, in fact, for some of us, it's more valuable than money. It's called time. How do I spend my time? How do I invest my time? Look at your calendar. Look at your schedule. It'll tell you what's most important in your life. Go back over a month. If you use like iCal or you use Outlook or whatever, look at your calendar. It'll tell you what you spend your time doing and what's most important. And, and for some of us, we've lost this. We, we think that we're, our time is our own. Therefore, I live my life and God gets a portion of my time. God should get all of our time. We should align ourselves with what he wants our life to be about. And there's a third question is what dominates my attention? What is your focus? When you get out of bed in the morning, what is your biggest anxiety? What is your biggest passion? What dominates your thinking? What dominates your thought process? What are your dreams? And are they dreams that only include God as he blesses your dreams? Or are they the dreams that God has given you for your life? There's a big difference between the two. Maybe a fourth question. This is one that really reveals a lot about us. And I've discovered in my own life is how do I pray? I've really started to think about the way that I pray. Because when I, when I have times of prayer and I walk away and I think, you know, 90% of what I just did was asking God for something for me. I've just given him my needs list or what I think is my needs and maybe some of our wants. And I've said, God, you've got you've to give me what I want. See, if that's true, then maybe you and I need to take a step back and realize that what we're doing is we're asking God to bless our plans. And God doesn't want to bless our plans. There's something he's already blessing, his plans, not ours. Instead of being an add-on, what we should be doing is saying, God, what do you want me to do? In fact, instead of blessing me when I give, God, where do you want me to give and how much do you want me to give? Instead of spending time and asking God to bless my time, maybe we should ask God, God, what do you want me to do with my time? And see what he says in our life. And many times we will start to see something different. Now, before I move on, I want, I want you to understand because... This is true in our church and true in all churches. There are probably a good percentage of you right now, after I just went through that list, all you can think of is, man, I am a horrible person. I don't have God first in my life. I don't spend money the way I should. I don't invest my time. I waste time. I really should do better. And right now, you are kicking yourself, and all you can feel is the weight of guilt. And that's tragic. Because what you've missed out is what I've just described is not something that a religious person can ever do. Because they're motivated by guilt. And guilt is anxiety. It leads to anxiety. What Jesus is describing for you and I of what it means to follow him, to seek him first, only comes in the context of not a contract, but a relationship. That if you and I have a deep and profound value and love for God, then what I've just described for you is not difficult. It may be hard at times, but it's not this overwhelming thing. I can't do that. See, when you and I really experience God's love, then we, then we function not out of obligation. We function out of passion and drive and heart. It's like, think about a relationship in your life that you've been in where you actually felt deep affection and love for somebody. It's very easy to love somebody that you love, that you care for. Like my life, other than obviously God is the one that I always want to be the priority. But in my life, when push comes to shove, Kim always wins over everything else because I love her. Now, is that difficult? No, it's not. 
It's really not. Why? Because it's driven from within inside of me. And because of that, it's easy to love her in a way that she appreciates and that actually I get the benefit of actually loving her. Why? Because it's in this relationship. And if for somehow, for some reason, Kim came to me with this list and said, this is what you're going to have to do for me, and I didn't love her, I wouldn't do it. Because guilt can only get you so far. And eventually, you'll, out, you'll, you'll quiet down the guilt and anxiety enough to stop doing that. But you, what you and I need to hear is that God welcomes us into relationship so that you and I live this out in a way that is because of his love for us and our love for him. What do I do? I put him first. He is the priority in my life. And that comes when you and I make that commitment to him. And then final kind of two things, two and one, is also in verse 33, because Jesus says, but seek first, and then he tells us what to seek first. He gets very specific. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So let me talk about those two. The first one, so in verse 33, is focusing on God's kingdom in our life. Now, when we talk about kingdom, sometimes people like kind of tune out like kingdom. That's kind of crazy talk. What are we talking about kingdom? I just want to know who Jesus is. I want to figure out how I get into heaven and, you know, how God takes away problems in my life. What are you talking about kingdom? Jesus came 2,000 years ago to establish and to basically declare that his kingdom is coming and his kingdom is arriving. And so you see miracles and you see the power of God and you see salvation. You see those are things that accompany the kingdom of God. And so wherever God's presence is, wherever God's people are, wherever God is given the priority, that's where his kingdom is. His kingdom is not in a physical location. It's in a group of people called the church that he is using to spread and advance his kingdom around the world. It's where he shows up. And so what God is saying is that what you and I should seek first is not our own kingdom, our own agenda, our own plan, but God's kingdom, what his purpose is, what his agenda is for our lives and for the world. That's what he says, seek that first. Again, the tension we live in is what do we end up doing? We want God to bless our will for our lives. We want God to bless our agenda instead of asking him what is his. Seeking first. Now here's the challenge. Sometimes you and I can say that we're seeking God's kingdom, but what we're really doing is we're seeking under the guise of God's kingdom, our own kingdom that God will bless. And I'll tell you right now, God will not bless that. And what, what we're talking about is what James describes in James chapter 2, or choose chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He talks about what happens inside of us when we ask God with the wrong motives. Because James says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. We like to end the verse right there. End verse 2, don't go to verse 3. Because like, oh, all I have to do is ask God and he'll give me. Wait a second. James goes on. He said, when you ask... You do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. How many times do we say we're seeking God's kingdom first, but really what we're doing is we're seeking for ourselves. We want God to bless what we're doing in our life. And I've seen so many times this leads to disappointment with God. Because what we do is we set up that if God is God, then ultimately what we've really exchanged him for is a genie. And the genie gives me my wishes. And if he doesn't give me my wishes, then he's not a genie. And that means God's not God. I prayed and I asked and God didn't answer. Yes, he did. It may not be what you wanted and it may not have been when you wanted it. But he answers because he's a father that answers according to what's best for his kids. Even when we can't see it, that means we have to have faith and we have to trust him. But how many times in our life do we, we miss that? So how do you and I really seek his kingdom first? How do we experience that? 
What's amazing about how the God of the universe in his wisdom has chosen flawed human beings to be the conduits of his kingdom power in the world. Don't ask me why he did that. Because I don't get it. Because you and I would pick robots or something else, something other than human beings who are flawed and who mess up. But when you and I say yes to Jesus, when we commit our lives to following him, the scripture tells us that he deposits his Holy Spirit inside of us. That means that God's spirit lives in us. And that means because we are a conduit of God's kingdom power, the Holy Spirit is his power that goes out through us to touch people around us. This is relatively profound and one of the things in the church that we just miss. Let me just give you a little snippet of my journey. So I grew up in a Pentecostal church. Very good Pentecostal church, but, but when I was first introduced to the concept of being filled with the Holy Spirit, it came across as, you need this because you need to speak in tongues, and you need this because you need to fill, feel the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in you. So I said, well, that sounds like good stuff, so let's do it. So I remember, I think I was like in seventh grade, I got prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you, God uses strange people to do strange things in your life. So at that time, which to me, I, it's not biblical, but I was told to repeat tongues after somebody else to kind of get the language going, which you never see in the book of Acts. So I did, and, but God uses the foolishness of man to somehow bring his power. So I ended up getting the gift of tongues, being filled with the Holy Spirit. But I remember after a month or two, I came to my dad and I said, Dad, okay, I speak in tongues. Okay, it's a little weird speaking a language I don't understand. I said, but what else? I, I, I don't get it. This is supposed to be like this powerful experience. And when we get together, people speak in tongues. And you show up to a meeting and you're supposed to get the Holy, goose, the Holy Ghost goosebumps. And it's supposed to be this great experience, right? And like, that's it? And I remember for a number of years, I struggled with that. I thought, this, this can't be what it means to be Pentecostal. Until my later high school years into college, I really started to read the Bible and read what was there. When I got to Acts chapter 1, I read Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus told his disciples to wait, and then when they waited, he said, I will fill you, I will send my spirit, I will baptize you in my spirit. Why? So that you will go to church and have goosebumps? Nope. So that you will be my witnesses. When I read that verse, even though I had read it before, it was like, oh, the light went on. Now I get it. The Holy Spirit was given to me not so that I could control him and hang on to him and say how good it feels to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given to me so that I could give him away. The Holy Spirit was given to me so I could be a conduit of his power, which means this. There should be something dynamic about following Jesus. We should not be like everybody else. And that means that when you and I, the Holy Spirit's definition is not contained in this room. In fact, he was given for outside this room. Think about this. That means when you and I leave this place, where you go out to eat, you go to work, you, where you live, you are a conduit of God's kingdom power, which means when you show up, God's presence is with you. If you and I started to switch, switch the way that we saw life around us to realize that God is with me, God works within me, God is going to impact people's life around me, all you and I have to do is be obedient. See, we only think that that's for certain people. Uh, that's for the spiritual, that's for pastors, just so, by the way, so many times people come to me, Pastor, would you pray for me? Pastor, I have a friend. Pastor, could you do this? Guess what? If you said yes to Jesus and his Holy Spirit has filled you and empowered you, you don't need a pastor. You are one. You have the same spirit in you that I do in me. I'm not any more special. And you read through the book of Acts. God didn't use just pastors, did he? He used people. Because the same spirit lives in all of us. And by the way, there's not enough pastors to reach the world but there is enough of the church to reach the world, to see God's power work through all of us. And then the final thing I want to touch on. So Jesus says, 
seek my kingdom. So then he says something else. He says, and righteousness. So the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that comes from God. Now, why would he throw that in? This is really important as we close with this. So as we pursue God, there is this tendency in us to begin to define righteousness in a very narrow way. And righteous becomes, righteousness becomes morality. And instead of seeking God's righteousness through Jesus, we seek self-righteousness through morality. And when we do that, you know what we become? We become Pharisees. Because what Jesus is talking is seeking his righteousness. What is the righteousness of God that comes through Jesus? Is it righteousness of being a good person? It's not. That righteousness is a gift from God that comes because Jesus died on the cross for you and I. And on the cross, this crazy exchange, which is totally not fair to Jesus, he takes our sin and in return he gives us his righteousness. And at the moment that you say yes to giving your life to Jesus and you repent for your past, you confess your sin, guess what? You are considered justified, which means you now before God are considered righteous. Now you see, that sounds kind of theological, just, but just think about this. Even though you are a sinner, but you are saved by Christ's sacrifice, you're righteous. Not because you've done anything, but because God has done something for you through Jesus. Now why is that important? Because in the pursuit of God, you and I are really good at being religious. And it's very dangerous, even in a message like this, when Jesus says, hey, seek my kingdom, I'll supply the needs for you. You and I go on this, this pursuit of morality, being morally pure, doing all the right things. And so what are we seeking is we're not seeking his righteousness, we're seeking our righteousness. And when you and I are, are so busy, consumed, and fo- focused on reaching people and being about his kingdom, and we fail in the process, that's when we're able to thank God for his righteousness through Jesus that covers our sin. So I seek after living right, but I also seek after the fact that God has made me right. So that you and I don't become religious because the worst possible scenario is for you and I to call ourselves a Christian and all, all we really are is religious. And, and I have found in my own life, and I've found in the lives of many people who claim to follow Jesus, that one of the, the biggest areas of anxiety is guilt, because you've come up short. And you constantly live your life in this tension, trying to be good, trying to be righteous, trying to be moral, and you keep failing, and you keep the cycle going, and you keep feeling horrible, and you keep stuck in guilt. Why? Because your life has not been about pursuing his righteousness. Your life has become about pursuing your own And God is wanting you to know you can't be righteous apart from Jesus. Only he can do that. And when you and I embrace that, you know, guess what? It lifts this load off that, you know what? I know I'm a sinner and I know I'm going to fail. I don't try to fail, but I know in my humanity I'm going to fail. But I'm declared righteous because I have the ability to confess my sin, to turn from it and continue to follow Jesus. So I don't have to carry the guilt and the shame of my sin. I get to be free from that. What? To pursue passionately after his kingdom. And as I'm doing that, guess what? What Jesus said in the last part of verse 33. And all the stuff that pagans run after, all the stuff that you think you need, yeah, I'll throw that in too. That's what he's saying. All the clothing, all the food, all the necessities of life, if you pursue me, you'll have all of what you need. That is a great deal. I'll take that any day. I pursue God and you take care of my needs. That makes great sense. I don't have to carry the weight anymore. Why? Because now I'm free to pursue God passionately with my life. See, you and I should be at a place in our life 
that every single day you get up and God gives you breath, you should be passionately excited about the day ahead of you because you're following Jesus. And you don't know where he's going to lead you that day. You may have a schedule, but because his kingdom power works in you, because of the Holy Spirit, you get up and you're excited. Why? Because God's going to do something in my life today. God's going to work through me today. And he's given me another life because he's determined the days on this planet. He's given me another day because he's got something else he wants to do in me. If that is not the description of our existence, then I don't know if we fully understand what it means to know Jesus. That was Paul. Paul was crazy. Paul's life was amazing. Paul's life was difficult, but Paul, every single day, surrendered his life to Jesus and saw God do amazing things. So it's not just the absence of fear, anxiety, and worry. It's the presence of passion and focus and living for God's kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words that challenge us once again. Lord, not challenge us to somehow be more righteous or to be more moral, but challenge us to really understand what does it mean to follow you? What does it mean to surrender ourselves to you? And so, Lord, I ask that today there would be a lifting, Lord Jesus, of the weight that we carry in this life. The burden that we place on ourselves to make ends meet, to make sure that we have what we need and Lord, we've, we, we do need to confess and, and we need to ask for forgiveness that we have made those things the focus and we've become distracted from your purpose, from your grace, from your mission, from your kingdom in our life. So I ask today, Lord, that you would realign ourselves back on your kingdom and your righteousness. And that as we do that, we wouldn't worry about all the things that you're going to provide. We wouldn't even worry about tomorrow because we know today that you're working in us. And the trouble that we face today, Lord, you have given us more than enough to handle because your Holy Spirit works in us and your Holy Spirit is present to bring about the power and the ability, Lord, to not only follow you, but Lord, to be your witnesses in our lives, in our families, in our schools, in our jobs, in our communities, and in the world. We thank you that you have made a way to provide for everything that we need. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.